Well, this week, Yellowstone National Park made the news. Not because of its world-renowned beauty, nor its wonderful wildlife, not even because of its famous hot springs. In this case, Yellowstone National Park made the news because of this guy. Yes, this guy. He was a gentleman who was either extremely arrogant, extremely confused, or extremely foolish, or maybe some combination of all three. As the normal crowds of dozens of people gathered at the viewing area next to the geyser, otherwise known as Old Faithful, that, by the way, shoots up boiling hot lava water, as they gathered to watch this, the gentleman decided that it would be a good idea to leave the sectioned-off safe area and see for himself what was inside the geyser. Genius, isn't it? As the nearby crowds yelled and screamed to get his attention, as if that would help, he let them know that he was okay through the usual means of sign language that we find on the freeway when people are a bit frustrated with us. At that point, the yelling from the crowd turned to booing, and he walked off stage left. Amazingly, this was not the first time someone has ventured off the beaten path in Yellowstone, as I did a little tiny bit of research on this. Lots of people venture off the path. There's something called hot potting, where you literally leave the safe walkway to go sit in a geyser. Very odd. Very, very odd. Unfortunately, what many park visitors do not realize is that much of the crust of the earth that can be seen with the eye in these areas is too thin to support weight. And in some cases, people have died horrible, excruciating deaths doing exactly what this man was doing. In response to these kinds of infractions, the superintendent of the park usually releases some statement to the press along the lines of, the paths and caution signs are there for your safety. Please heed their warning. Now, one would think that they need to say no more because of the news stories which accompany these previous, uh, which accompany these warnings, and they should serve to the public as bold cautionary tales. And yet, something about us as humans, maybe it's just sheer stupidity, I don't know, something decides that we know better or that our individual right to move past the stated regulation is more important than the regulation itself. It reminds you of a certain scene in a garden, doesn't it? Often the motivation behind these foolish exploits is the notion of getting footage for our YouTube channels or just the right post for Instagram. That's literally what's stated in a lot of the, the press releases. Regardless, cautionary tales are well known in our lives. They're a well-worn part of the fabric of our societal boundaries. Whether it be signs that say whether or not to go, uh, where to go when visiting Yellowstone or phrases and sayings that we grow up with, we learn very early on to pay attention to heed the cautionary tale or pay the consequences at our own peril. As we read through God's word, the grand narrative of scripture shows us an interesting cautionary tale. We see the role that Israel plays in both fortunate and unfortunate ways. One of the roles that they unfortunately play is the role of providing a cautionary tale. In the scripture that Ryan read to us earlier, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and strongly emphasizing for them the necessity of looking to Israel as examples for what not to do. Take, for example, just the portions of what Ryan read, 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, Paul is saying, look to the narrative of Israel. 
Not just one story pulled out of context among others, but look to the grand narrative of Israel and see in the midst of the old covenant a cautionary tale. This morning as we look at the text before us, we will see it as a cornerstone and foundation for the narrative that would play out in the old covenant for this cautionary tale. And so today, I want you to write this down. This is the title of this sermon, The History of Israel as a Cautionary Tale. And just as Paul noted in his letter to Corinth, we can learn a lot from their history. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 45. And we're going to read the last third of the section we've been covering in Deuteronomy on blessings and cursings. Let's look at verse 45 there. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave your grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish." They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set a soul, the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will be grudged to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter. Her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because she's lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Yet another section of scripture I never see in the Caleb daily verse. I wonder why that is. Verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also, and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were numerous, as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart 
and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you would never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Now let's begin by breaking this all down and comparing it to the reality of history. And what we will find is this simple but powerful truth this morning. The first point you can write down is this. Giving our allegiance to idols is making a choice to be enslaved. Giving our allegiance to idols is making a choice to be enslaved. This section of scripture is like a big neon sign in front of Old Faithful that says, Caution, if you stick your head in here, it will get shot off by boiling hot lava water. Don't do it. And yet, we find people sticking their head in the geyser. Giving our allegiance to idols is making a choice to be enslaved. We began the chapter with all the blessings for obedience. And last week, we looked at the reverse that disobedience brings cursing. And up until this point, we have looked at these from a very applicable point of view for how we often misapply these texts in errant theology. We take the blessings and we turn it into prosperity gospel. If I'm good, God will make my life easy, we say. And that is false and a lie from the pit of hell. We take these truths and we say, if I do anything wrong, if I am imperfect, God is ready to wipe me out. And that likewise is an errant theology. God is not like that. He is a compassionate and merciful, steadfastly loving God. And so we've looked at these and we've seen that they've been applicable to correcting our theology. But today we want to look at these in great depth and see the way that these played out in the lives of the nation of Israel because to do so would be to miss the context of what it is. So let's look at the whole of the cursing from this section as it played out over time. First, look back, just turn back just slightly to 28.14 and take a look at 28.14. Right before you go into the cursings for disobedience, it says, and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Remember the context of this is, it's not a contract, it's covenant. I'm covenanting with you, God says. And so to break the covenant is to literally break relationship. It's to go commit spiritual adultery with a different God, a different demonic being, a pagan God, and not stay in relationship with Yahweh. The context is disobedience of covenant unfaithfulness. They were serving idols rather than Yahweh. Now if we look at 2848, we see there that he says, Therefore, if you break this covenant, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. In essence, God is being a perfect gentleman. He's giving his people over to their desires. And the fullness of that is that they will end up serving the enemies of God, their own enemies that worship these false idols. And they will live in famine and be enslaved as a result. You see, the crazy part about idolatry is that we always pursue worship of something other than God because we think it will gain us something that Yahweh is not providing to our stipulations. But the reality is, is that idols and idolatry always leave us hungry for more. They always leave us in famine. 
They always leave us without satiation. We're always looking for more. And it will always leave us enslaved to the very thing that we thought would bring us freedom from our incessant need to be provided for by God. As we look at the history of Israel, roughly 500 years after this point in Deuteronomy, 500 years after this caution, the downward spiral of idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness had led to a point where God has been sending prophets, acting as covenant lawyers on behalf of God to convict Israel of their breach of covenant faithfulness. You see, guys, we don't serve a God who was waiting to stamp them out with his thumb the second after they sinned. He waited 500 years, 10 generations at minimum. He sent prophet after prophet begging the people not to commit idolatry. What kind of a God is that? It's a loving, compassionate God. He is loving and compassionate. And yet, what we see is that they still walked away. Look with me at Jeremiah, this is two, uh, Jeremiah 2, 17 through 21. It's up there on the screen. Jeremiah comes along later into that 500 years and he says, Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? This is where we get the idea that we choose enslavement by taking on idolatry. Jeremiah says, And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine. He came to warn them and said, turn back, don't do this. And here is what is recorded in the historical books. This is in 2 Kings in regards to the northern kingdom. Why don't you turn there with me? Turn to 2 Kings, just to the right. And go to 2 Kings 17. Starting in verse 6. If you reach First and Second Chronicles, you've gone too far, go back to the left. 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Now pause for a second there. You read all the way through Scripture, you're doing your you know, yearly chronological review, and you kind of forget about Deuteronomy by the time you get to First and Second Kings, and you think to yourself, what kind of a God? I thought he was going to cover them and protect them. Guys, 500 years later, God was begging with them not to do this. And yet, they did, and this is the outcome. It says, verse 9, And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill. Those are asherim poles, uh, statues that they would dance around on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by the servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And then just 136 years later, again, waiting patiently. You have Assyria in the north getting pulled, uh, pulling away Israel. Just 136 years later, you have Judah following the same fate because God was so wonderfully compassionate and merciful that he said, man, I'm going to really go after Israel because their idolatry is super bad and I'm going to pull them away and maybe that will shock Judah. And yet Judah did not repent. Turn a little bit to the right to 24 and look at 24.14. This is speaking of the king of Babylon. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials and the chief men of the land that he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Jerusalem was captured and the people were taken away to serve their enemies. So we can easily see in these sections the fulfillment of multiple pieces of the promises of Deuteronomy. You can see that Deuteronomy was given as that giant sign saying, don't stick your head in the boiling hot cauldron. And yet they did anyway. And shocking, the water burned them. Their head got blown off. That's the way it works. God waited. God was steadfast and loving. He was compassionate. He gave room. Look back with me to Deuteronomy 28. I think often the world can look at this. And remember, this is one of the reasons we go through texts like this is because you are the church. And we are trying to train you up to be representatives not only of the gospel, but of the word of God so that you can understand it and speak to the non-believer who says, wait a minute, what about that, that part in your Bible that says that God exiled his people because they were disobedient? What do you do with that? Well, you can immediately reply, wait, I need to teach you about the God that is compassionate and merciful, that is patient, that wants that none should perish and calls them constantly back to repentance. And we can see that God tried in Deuteronomy 28 to warn them. Take a look there at Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. This is speaking of Assyria and of Babylon and of Syria itself. <clears throat> Multiple different countries that would come in and destroy Israel. Here we see the promise that these enemies will come upon Israel and besiege them to such a point where the walls that they thought would cover them would instead fail them and enslave them. Take a look at verse 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down and throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. This is such a great metaphor for idolatry. 
What God promised to Israel is that if they placed their trust in him and covenanted with him, he would be their refuge and strong tower. But they tricked themselves into thinking that they were in relationship with him when all the while they were actually trusting in what? To save them. Their high walls. They tricked themselves into thinking they were in relationship with him when all the while they were trusting in some brick walls. And because of this misplaced trust, they fell to their knees and pers- that pers- the, at the enemies that pursued them. And what they trusted in eventually led to being enslaved, not free. I wonder how many Christians are actually trusting in their church to save them, trusting in their friendships to save them, trusting in the liturgy to save them, trusting in just this book to give them enough points on how to live life that it will save them. I wonder how many things we're trusting in. The positive, encouraging verse of the day, is that what we're trusting in? The happy feeling we get when we get that positive verse, is that what we're trusting in? Or are we trusting in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in the personal covenant relationship and collective covenant relationship we have with him? Whether it be the worship of material prosperity, which we have discussed the last few weeks, whether it be the gods of security, of comfort, of sexuality, of popularity, of success, the gods of our marriages, of our children, of our jobs and our businesses, the idols of politics and talk radio and Fox News and CNN. Whatever our gods are, we must recognize that these idols crowd out the one true God of the Bible. And notice how the prophet The prophets come and they speak to this. One such prophet was Ezekiel. He speaks to this kind of covenant unfaithfulness and its consequences when he says this in Ezekiel 17, 12. Say now to the rebellious house, do you know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took their king and her princes and brought them to him in Babylon. Their breaking of the covenant invited in this siege and exile. God didn't do this to them. They invited it. And God opened his hands and said, if that's what you want. We need to remember that this kind of idolatry did not just happen overnight. There was a slow fade from faithfulness of Israel that proclaimed on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal just a few chapters earlier. We will be faithful to the covenant. But it was a slow fade from that to the point where these curses were befalling them. It was 500 plus years. Church, does this sound like a God ready to pounce at the first imperfection? or sin. It was a slow fade of turning from covenant faithfulness. And what would happen? The people would turn so far from God that they would find it normal to be doing the most horrific acts. We see it here in Deuteronomy in this horrifically disgusting description in verses 53 through 57. You can read it on your own. I'm going to stay away from it. One time a day is enough. But they were literally eating their own children. There was so much famine in the land that they would hide their newborn children from the rest of their family and devour them cannibalistically. The women were so hungry that they would give birth to a newborn child and they would take the afterbirth and they would eat it because they were so hungry and they would be not even generous in it. They would keep it for themselves. I know it's disgusting. You should see her faces right now. It's gross, but it's the reality of what was going on. This was truly to the point that the unthinkable had become normal. I'm amazed at the number of Christians I've seen just in my short life who were passionate for Jesus one moment and a slow fade later, 5, 10, 15 years later, 
The lifestyle they're living, it bears no resemblance to a Christian. bears every resemblance to someone of the world. The unthinkable had become normal. Look at how this plays out historically. We see Jeremiah crying aloud in Lamentations. He says this in Lamentations 4.10, that it had already happened. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Speaking of Jerusalem. And listen to how it's recorded in 2 Kings when Syria invades Samaria and the king of Israel is blaming God for the siege and famine rather than taking responsibility for it himself. This is 2 Kings 6, 24 through 29. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head, right? Which, that's not good meat, okay? A donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, And the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung, which they would use for their fires, okay? You know you're in bad straits if you look for dove's dung to be your firewood, right? Remember how small doves are, okay? This is not a good state of of things. It was for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? That's a great leader right there. From the threshing floor or from the wine press. And the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. This is history. This actually occurred. Elisha came along and was a prophet sent by God proclaiming the need for repentance at this time. But rather than repent, the people of Israel blamed God and blamed Elisha for not providing them, even though they had breached the covenant. How we would hear it today in evangelicalism is, God is a God of unconditional love. It doesn't matter what you do. You can be in relationship with him and continue sinning, and he's just going to freely forgive you all the time. Isn't that great? And then you get to go to heaven when you die. It's the false gospel of an unconditional love gospel. Dear church, we've said this before. The true gospel is a contra-conditional love gospel. Contra-conditional is that in spite of your sin, Jesus came to the earth to pay the consequence of your sin. He came as the atoning sacrifice to, to sorry, almost lost that, to uh, pay the price for your sin and for mine. Jesus came in spite of us. He came not saying, do whatever you want for the rest of your life, I'll love you anyway. Husbands, wives, how would that work out in your life if your spouse came to you and said, I want an unconditionally loving relationship? What does that mean? I'd like to go commit adultery with whoever I want and I'd like you to still love me. How would that work out for you? Not well. And yet we preach it from pulpits all the time. God is unconditionally loving. No, he's not. He's contra-conditionally loving. Hans, you're just making up fancy theological terms. No, it's a very important piece. Because to preach an unconditionally loving gospel is to tell people... Deuteronomy 28 is garbage. You can do whatever you want and no cursing will come upon you. You can stick your head in old faithful and it will not blow up on you. But see, the reality is, is it will eventually. It may not for many, many years. And you may continue in sin for many, many years thinking that you are in relationship with Jesus, but eventually it will overtake you. If not in your life, then in eternity. And so the truth of the gospel is is that it's contra-conditionally loving. And the prophets were trying to tell the people, guys, it's not too late. And see, that's the contra piece of the gospel. 
is that it's not too late. No matter what you have done up until this point in your life, God will freely forgive you. His grace is abounding. You can be literally the worst person on the face of the planet. And if you cry out for forgiveness, repent or baptize and step into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, he will forgive you. But at that point, he says, grow in sanctification, not perfection. Learn to grow more into my image. And this is the gospel that is proclaimed. And this is what the prophets were coming to say. Because we see in Deuteronomy that if that doesn't happen, that the final step of God giving the people over to their sin is this, that God will give the people of Israel over to their covenant unfaithfulness and idolatry. And what they will see is that the very redemption that God had secured for them actually is reversed. Take a look at Deuteronomy 28.59 there. 28.59. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases, or you could read in plagues of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, any of us who've read through Genesis know this is speaking to the covenant with Abraham, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. And God is saying, even though I covenanted with you, if you continue to go back to idols, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then it says later in verse 68, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. The people once freed from Egypt, redeemed from slavery, securing the promises of Abrahamic covenant spoken of there by that phrase, numerous as the stars of heaven, and given the provision of the promised land, they would find themselves back in Egypt and back where they began, in exile and anxiety. But this time, not even Egypt would take them back. Well, biblical history shows in the midst of the fall of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah to Babylon, otherwise known as the Chaldeans, that Israel did indeed seek refuge in Egypt, not in God himself. Take a look there at 2 Kings 25, verse 26. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Secular history agrees that the Jews sought refuge in Egypt because it was there in Alexandria that they put together what's called the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, which we base a lot of our English versions off of, they ended up back in Egypt, a complete reversal of redemption. Now, just as it was spelled out in Deuteronomy 28, it occurred in the history of Israel, a very unfortunate cautionary tale that ended with the demise of Israel as a kingdom. And I give you all this scripture, which is really just barely touching the surface, to show you that God proved true to these promises. What he spelled out actually occurred. Now, one way that we can quickly take this and apply it on the collective level and ask ourselves how God could speak this is to our nation. What would he say in a cursing section for 2019 for the United States of America? And that is one to ponder. And we can think about that. What should we say? In, uh, where should we say we are in the same 500-year waiting period? Are we towards the end? Are we towards the middle? 
Do we have a covenant with Yahweh as a country? Have we broken it? But personally, I don't believe that that's the cautionary tale that Scripture leads us to. Too often we combine our nationalism and our idea as Americans with our idea as Christians. The two are not actually the same. What I think that it actually leads us to is that God's word is clear that all earthly kingdoms and empires slowly go into the dustbin of history, which will be the same for ours. The United States will not stand when the kingdom of God does. Only God's kingdom will eventually stand. So then, Hans, what are we to gain from this cautionary tale? If it's not for the country, then is it for the church? Well, no, we learned last week that the church cannot fail. Jesus himself said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So this isn't speaking to the church, that the church will lose its salvation. This is not meant to speak to the collective of Christ's body. So this is a cautionary tale for each one of us. Individually, giving our allegiance to idols is making a choice to be enslaved. And really, why should we seek after idols, dear church, when the God that warns us is so wonderfully amazing and compassionate? He is so loving that he calls each of us to heed this warning and turn away from any idolatry we find in our lives. Brothers and sisters, right now, right where you sit, I want to challenge you to pray for conviction and clarity of any idols you might have in your life. How do we know that they're idols? Well, they are things that you have turned to for comfort, for security, for rest, redemption, love, identity, things other than Christ. And so right now, right where you sit, I want you, you can close your eyes, you can keep them open. I want you to take a moment right where you sit and silently pray for clarity of those idols that you need to destroy so that Christ may reign supreme in your life. You see, idols give us nothing that lasts. But the steadfast love of the Lord is eternal. Why would we seek anything else? Even within this cautionary tale, we see God's goodness. We see how amazing our God is and why we should seek nothing else. You might say, Hans, how do we see that in this section on cursing? Well, here's what we see today. You can write this down. In this section today, we see God's compassion in his caution. We see God's faithfulness in his promises. We see God's righteousness in those promises fulfilled. Now, I know that this is a mouthful. This is longer than I usually give you for a point in the teachings. But there are at least three ways that we can see God's character in this section of Scripture. The first is through the fact that he is compassionate in his caution. I can't help but think of the book of Proverbs when I think of warnings or caution and how it ties to the compassion of God for his children. One of our jobs, parents, is to warn our children about the things that might befall them, not to make them uh, paranoid, but to help them understand consequences. And over and over again, the book of Proverbs speaks of wisdom beginning with a fear and respect of the Lord as a son would give the same to his father. And this isn't an authoritarian fear or respect. Do this or else. Do as I say, not as I do. Those things are unhealthy and abusive. What it is, is a God and a father that loves his children and has that relationship in place first can then have open lines of communication where he says something like this from Proverbs 4.1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. 
Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget. And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Does this sound like a God who's angry and authoritarian with his children? No, it's a God who's loving and desires the best for his kids. He wants his children to turn away from that warning sign and to embrace the safety of what he has delineated and regulated and said, this is where life is found. Wanting more for his children than even what he might have experienced himself. Speaking of an earthly father. Dear brothers and sisters, we have just such a father in God. But rather than one who simply had wisdom through trial by fire like many of us earthly parents, we have the source of all wisdom. And in that wisdom, he lovingly speaks to you and I and says, follow me and it will bring life. Avoid foolishness. In Yahweh's caution to his people, we hear his heart as a father crying out saying, this is the way, walk in it, for all other ways will lead to your ruin. In this section, even in cursings, we see the compassion of his caution. Secondly, we see God's faithfulness in the midst of his promises. It's hard to see all of these items spelled out in the section labeled cursing for disobedience as promises, but that is what they are. I always chuckle to myself when I hear us, I'm going to include myself in this, as Christians saying to one another, just remember God's promises. Well, half of those, yeah, remember those if you want to have a good day. If you want to have a bad day, remember the other half depending upon the context. It is so much a part of our Christianese culture to say to one another, remember the promises of God. And there are even little mini books. There's one in my office that have been written that lists the promises of God that make us feel all warm and fuzzy all over. And we should remember those promises and take solace in them, but we should also take solace in the fact that God not only keeps those promises that work out well for us, rather God keeps all his promises. He's just that faithful. You see, God promises his people that he will not flinch in punishing the guilty who refuse to repent. Notice he's not saying his own children who make a mistake. And this should be comforting to us, not only that he is faithful to all that he says, which, which means we can take stock of his good promises, but that God will make an end of evil and bring restoration to this world. You see, if the, the other half of the promises, the promises of punishment, of unrepentant evil weren't there, then we could not be assured that restoration would ever come. And all his good promises would be empty. God is faithful in all his promises. If you are wondering where God is in the midst of the craziness of this world, or maybe you are wondering where God is in the midst of what you have dealt with in your life, or maybe what you're dealing with today. Maybe you see, see a lack of God even in the work that you do. You see the brokenness of the world and your heart breaks and you cry out, God, where are you in this? Recognize that we can see in the cautionary of, tale of Israel that God is faithful to all his promises. It just sometimes takes a little bit longer than what we see. And so he will be just as faithful to never leave you nor forsake you as his child. He will be faithful to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness because he promises it. He will be faithful to put your feet on solid ground even when it seems that the depths might overcome you. He has promised it and he's faithful to how many promises? 
all his promises. God's faithfulness is seen in the midst of these promises, even these curses. They were promises that if you leave him, this will happen. And they can give us strength to endure and rely on his faithfulness even in the hardest of circumstances. That leads us to this third attribute of God that we can see here. We can see God's righteousness in the fulfillment of these promises. If there is one thing that I have seen wreck the ability of parents to parent well, it is to break promises. When it is a promise of something fun or good that is broken, it makes it so that the children do not believe the parent. And when it is the promise of consequences that go unfulfilled, it causes the parent to lose honor in the eyes of the child. They become a lame duck parent or a paper tiger, unable to carry out the authority of their position. But that is not God. You see, God of the Bible is righteous in his judgments. And again, this should bring us solace. If you are a person who has confessed that you are a sinner in need of Christ as Savior, and you have repented from your sin and been baptized into the people of God, you can know that you need not fear the judgment of Christ. And if that is the case, you can also be assured that what you have to look forward to at the end of days is the fullness of restoration and redemption for yourself, for the church, and for the heavens and the earth. If God were one that blinked at sin or let sin and idolatry exist, we could not be assured of this future restoration. He would be nothing but a capricious God, one we could not trust to make good. In fact, our God would be a liar. And the fact that what God has promised to Israel in both the good and the bad is fulfilled over time serves to show us that God is a righteous God. He is a compassionate God. He is a faithful God. And so we know these things and we desire to accept God's caution. And this is my last point this morning. Let us be a people who heed the compassionate cautionary tale that God has provided. Let us be a people who heed the compassionate cautionary tale God has provided. You know, I'll be honest with you guys. I was sitting there preparing for this last night and I was thinking to myself, man, this isn't an exciting passage This isn't a happy passage. This is not a fun passage. Man, I hope there's no visitors tomorrow. I thought to myself, I don't really want to teach this, Lord. And the more I went through this and the more I studied, the more I realized it's kind of like the metaphor of the cautionary sign. How many times in your life have you walked past the cautionary sign and thought, meh, that was boring? Because you didn't step over it. But man, if you're a person who has ever been at that moment of potential death, you are super happy for the don't go any further, this may kill you. One time, the one time, I went snowboarding. We'll never do it again. Tall people should not snowboard. We had these wonderful friends who knew nothing about snowboarding but were super athletic and they just picked it up and so they took Kelly and I to the top of Mount Hood at the highest point of the, uh, whatever it's called, the ski whatever, that thing that takes you up there. Chairlift, thank you, there we go. Forgot my words this morning. We get up there, we get off the chairlift, and they say, here's how you snowboard. Go down the mountain. For a guy with my kind of balance, that was not a good idea. So after I almost took out one person's knee and a number of other potential injuries, not to to me, but to them, I eventually got down the mountain one time. 
Well, by the third time, I was so prideful and arrogant that I got up to the top and I thought, I can do this, and I started to gain a little bit of speed. But the problem was is I have the sense of direction of a rock. Rocks probably have more sense of direction. And so I went the wrong way. I'd never seen uh, the map of Mount Hood, and I thought to myself, all directions lead down the mountain, right? And so I went the wrong way, and I ended up on a double black diamond with super intense powder going at the speed of sound down the mountain... (laughs) And started to wonder to myself, I wonder if there's any cliffs. I kid you not, in a single moment, there was this impelling, compelling evidence in my heart that I needed to stop. So I did the only thing I knew how to do to stop. I fell over, <laughs> landed in this giant powder, and right at that moment, as if it was God's hand giving me a caution, all of the clouds of the whiteout of the day moved and I saw that I was literally about a foot away from a cliff that would have killed me. I climbed out of the powder over the course of hours, finally made it down to the bottom of the mountain. My wife was standing there weeping, thinking that I was dead, rightly so, because I should have never been there. And I was so thankful for that compelling caution to stop what I was doing. Now, you can tell me all sorts of stories about caution signs and cliffs, but I will never, ever be as thankful for a caution sign as I was at that moment for that sign that said in my heart, stop what you're doing. Pay attention. You see, that's the kind of caution that God is giving us. Let us be a people who heed the compassionate cautionary tale God has provided. With the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 echoing in our ears, we recall what we started this teaching with. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so what are we to learn here? Well, we see that God is righteous, faithful, and compassionate. But do we also see the comparison to you and I? For you see, Israel was redeemed. They were like us. They had been freed from slavery. They'd been given grace just as we have. They'd been brought from the kingdom of darkness, Egypt, and brought into the people of God, the kingdom of light, They'd been given a commission and a promise of eventual rest in a land that God had prepared for them. The one thing they didn't have was the Holy Spirit innate within them. And while some succeeded in persevering in that promise, many others failed to meet that rest. You see, dear church, we too have been redeemed. The gospel clearly speaks that you and I were enslaved to a kingdom of darkness, enslaved under the taskmaster of sin and rebellion against a loving, compassionate, faithful, and righteous God. And yet God loved you and I so much that he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice that takes away our sin and reckons it dead. And so Jesus gave his life for you and I so that we might be reconciled to the Father God forgiven of our sin. If you don't know that today, if this is news to you, then one of the elders in the back during our response time of worship would love to pray with you and talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus. You see, if it stopped on the cross, we would have no hope, but Three days later, Jesus resurrected, proving that his work had succeeded so that even death had no hold on him. And then he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us so that we might know the Lord and have new desires and a new object of worship placed on our hearts. Not to make us perfect, but to make us sinners saved by grace, constantly striving towards the holiness that he shows us in loving compassion. And through this Spirit, he has brought us into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit so that we might uphold one another and assist one another in heeding that cautionary tale. Dear church, do you know that that is part of what it is to be a church? Not just to attend a place, but to be part 
of a fabric of people that hold one another strong in the midst of that cautionary tale. Not beating up on each other, but rejoicing when we can collectively see that cliff that we are about to go over and walk with Jesus instead. Each week I finish with the benediction from 2 Corinthians that says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And this is not just an empty formula to finish the liturgy. This is a truly heartfelt blessing that I pronounce because I know that these are so needed for us to persevere in this life and to stay away from the deceitfulness of sin. These are needed to be a people who do not slowly fade away into oblivion because of idolatry. For we know that we still need to heed the compassionate cautionary tale that God gives us. We are not inoculated against it. Let's turn to one last place of Scripture and read the commentary that the author of Hebrews has given us on the cautionary tale of God's people. I know it's one more long section of Scripture, but it's the last place I'll turn you. So turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to see the commentary that the New Testament writer gives us on heeding the cautionary tale of Israel. Let's look there at Hebrews 3.5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, he says to us as new covenant believers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. So how often? Let's hear it from everybody. How often? Exhort one another every day. Well, Hans, I don't see everybody in this church every day. Well, you know what you can do? You can open up, if you're a member, you can open up the membership directory and you can pray that everyone in this body might be exhorted to follow after the living God. You can pray for the visitors you met on Sunday. You can pray for the other churches in town. So he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Okay, so about 35, maybe 28. How about 42 when my kids start Little League and I just don't have time for passionately pursuing Jesus? Well, retirement, right? That's, that's kind of the end, right? I've finished working and then I go into retirement and, you know, I don't have to be as passionate for Jesus then, right? Okay, 75, Brian. You're, not, you're shaking your head. 75, does that work? Yeah. The end. When we stand in glory with Jesus Christ. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, the redeemed ones. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Remember, disobedient does not mean perfect. You do not call your children disobedient if they make mistakes. You only do that if they're constantly walking in rebellion, unwilling to learn and be humbled. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news. What's another word for good news? Gospel. For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You see how important the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is here? He says, then in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? What a loving God that he would clearly mark the pathways so that we do not wander off into danger. So many people get so flummoxed by this passage. I have had multiple meetings in my office People weeping and thinking that this is a promise that they will lose their salvation, that this very text assures us that we will fall away. People ask me all the time, Hans, are you Calvinist or are you Arminian? Do you believe in once saved, always saved? I say, I believe in Scripture. Dear brothers and sisters, that is more pathology than it is truth to think that the caution sign means you will go over the cliff. This is not about a theological bullet point of once saved, always saved, or you can lose your salvation. It's about the fact that there's a caution sign, and the question is, what will you do with it? One great Calvinist theologian who believes in once saved, always saved, that you cannot lose your salvation, paints this passage as a giant caution sign near the edge of a canyon. And he notes that no one in their right mind would get nervous around that sign as if it is a certain condemnation to falling over the cliff. So why do we do it theologically? Rather, they would view the sign with caution and think, I want nothing to do with that cliff. Similarly, this warning in Hebrews is a sign that says to you and to me, steer clear of fooling yourself into thinking your idolatry is actually following Christ. Instead, give idolatry and sin a wide berth and trust in Christ's body, the fellowship of the Spirit, to care for you and to keep you safe from the outcome of the cautionary tale. You see, dear church, one of the many reasons that we gather on Sundays is to draw near to the throne of grace to draw near to our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and to proclaim with one voice in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we hold our confession that Jesus died, that he rose, that he poured out his Holy Spirit, that he sits enthroned over his people, and he is waiting for the day to come again and establish the fullness of his reign and restoration. And in this confession, we are reminded to heed the cautionary tale and draw near, not to idolatry, but to Christ. So brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you this week. Visitors, I want to challenge you this week to identify one area of idolatry in your life. Bare minimum one. And be willing to speak it out loud to someone else that you trust in this congregation. Now that could happen at the table of communion this morning during worship. It could happen as you get together in small groups during the week. Or when you purposefully call your brother or sister to ask for assistance. What are you putting your trust and hope in? And what are you worshiping with your hearts and your energy other than Christ? 
Let's each purpose to lay these things down before our compassionate God and before his compassionate people so that we might be assured that one day we will enter his eternal rest. Let's be a people who heed the compassionate cautionary tale God has provided in the people of Israel. Christ alone has done the work to gain us entrance into the new covenant. Let us do our part to draw near to him with joyfulness and gladness in our hearts.